I hope you enjoy today's Oliver Kennan History Podcast. Reality Strikes The date is June 28, 1942. Nazi Germany, with all of its undeniable victories of the 1941 Operation Barbarossa campaign, has failed in reaching the Archangelesque-Ostrakhan line. The thrust of the German army was split into army groups north, south, and center, with the cities of Leningrad, Stalingrad, and Moscow being the main target of each group, respectively. With victory in the north, the dominance of the Baltic region would be achieved. And with the subsequent capture of Murmansk, the Soviet's northernmost port and one of the central hubs of the Allied Lend-Lease program would cut it off from some of the vital resources needed to sustain its war effort. Success in the center, with the capture of Moscow, would mark a traditional diplomatic victory that came with the capture of the enemy's capital. However, although this assumed method of victory may have worked in Europe, it did not work in the vast Eurasian expanses of the Soviet Union. Lastly, the thrust south towards the wheat and coal in Ukraine and the vital fuel supply of the Caucasus represented the gold mine of resources that the German Lebensraum saw in order for the German state to achieve autarky, self-sufficiency, in resources, which was one of Hitler's main goals to make Germany non-reliant on other nations for survival. With limited success in each front and the initial offensive of the war, Hitler decided to prioritize the southern thrust in the in the 1942 summer offensive, instructing the head of the OKH, Franz Halder, to execute this plan at his discretion. However, Franz Halder did not execute this plan and instead prioritized diverting the majority of the new units and reinforcements to Army Group Center. Halder planned to take Moscow with the hope that the occupation of the enemy capital, like all prior conquests, would result in the capitulation of the enemy forces. However, this planned offensive in the center never occurred, though, as local Soviet counteroffensive on the, on the flanks forced the Germans to stabilize their lines. The largest of these offensive, the Kharkov offensive, occurred in the center with the intention of destroying the German 6th Panzer Army. This offensive failed, and the ensuing German counterattack wrecked havoc on the Soviets, pushing them back and encircling several Soviet armies in the process. Though this was a military success, the summer offensive was now delayed due to this counterattack, which forced Army Group South, now split into Army Group A and Army Group B, to execute the same plan in a limited time frame. The intensity of this indoctrination cannot be underestimated, as it took several years in a Soviet POW camp for Private Joachim Vida to emerge with a changed perspective. The disconnect in how the troops perceived their situation versus the reality of it, both in military terms and racial terms, was a necessity for the success of the German Reich under Adolf Hitler in World War II. This made escaping an ideology which had been embedded in many soldiers since adolescence that much more difficult, with the war acting as an amplifier of these ideals, now put into action. Some might think that the harshness of the POW camp's conditions, which had death tolls of up to a million of three million Germans captured, would force a man so entrenched in his belief system to dig deeper, seeing poverty and maltreatment of him and his fellow prisoners at the hands of the quote-unquote barbaric enemy, this was not the end result, however, as even after enduring deadly conditions in a Soviet gulag, the humanity of his captors shone through, which brings to mind the old saying, people are afraid of what they don't know. In the totalitarian regime of Nazi Germany, citizens who had been brainwashed by the Nazis' racialized doctrine of pseudoscience became desensitized towards the oppression of the supposed enemies of the German state. This focus on the racial and subsequent moral dilution of the German state was used to justify the removal of these undesirable groups 
with deportations pre-war ramping up to the mass genocide of the Holocaust during the war. The account of William Hoffman gives insight into how a German that ascribed to the Nazi doctrine perceived the war, as well as glimpses of the fanaticism necessary for a war of extermination, both externally against the Soviet Union, as well as domestically against various quote-unquote undesirable minorities at home. Hoffman's diary from his time on the front illustrates the cult of personality surrounding Hitler. Upon hearing the Russian troops are completely broken, Hoffman immediately gives cre- credit to Hitler for this military success, asserting the fear her knows where the Russians' weak point is. This, along with the fact that Hoffman gave no credit to the OKH, German Military High Command, for their large part in the success of the campaign, demonstrates a blind trust in Hitler, which was a product of pr- propaganda narratives spread by propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. The decisive nature of the victory in France, the Benelux, Yugoslavia, Greece, and Scandinavia helped instill an aura of German infallibility and invincibility that would last through 1941. With nothing but victories up to this point, the average German soldier displayed a level of excitement and eagerness going to Stalingrad, with Hoffman's only hope being the reception of a war medal before the collapse of the Soviet Union. As Soviet resistance intensified in the, in the region, Hoffman notes that this was not a result of German military shortcoming. Instead, he reverts to Nazi doctrine, describing the Soviet soldiers as fighting desperately like wild beasts and calling their defense of a grain elevator barbarism. If Germans had performed these same acts, Hoffman would likely have described them as valorous. However, when the Soviets carried out the actions, Hoffman instead implies they are animalistic and overly fierce. This defense of the grain elevator also shows something larger and more symbolic in progress. In the German Reich's invasion into the Ukraine during the previous year, the Reich seized vital wheat and coal from the region, which significantly slashed the Soviets' main food supply. The 96 million tons of wheat normally harvested throughout the Soviet Union in 1941 was cut to 30 million tons in 1942. Other notable cuts in food supply were that of meat from 5 million tons to 2 million and milk from 34 million to 16 million in the same time frame. It is important to take into account the fact that large portions of the Soviet population were now under occupation, making the cuts only as drastic as the proportional loss of population. Even with this considered, the loss of the Ukraine was devastating to the food supply of the Soviet Union, with its soldiers receiving around half the calories of the American GIs. The German oil supply, ever since the war's outbreak, had crippled the OKH's ability to act effectively, with only around nine months of fuel for full military operation going into Barbarossa. Fallblatt was a chance to end this shortage. If captured, the Baku oil fields would provide enough fuel to sustain the German war industrial complex throughout the war. Additionally, Stalingrad and Grozny were both major railway hubs needed to supply the easternmost extent of the operation. Ostrakhan, which forced Germany to take both locations before advancing to the east and securing their hold in the region behind the Volga River. The grueling nature of this urban warfare within Stalingrad had begun to take a toll on Hoffman and his comrades, with some even committing self-inflicted wounds in an attempt to get pulled from the front. In his writing on the average German soldier, Stephen Fritz asserts that uniquely high level of motivation in the average German Lanzer such as Hoffman, can be attributed to the fact that the German military structure satisfied many of the primary personal demands afforded by the social organization. As more and more soldiers died, along with the disintegration of a social aspect of war, with death lurking around every corner, these ties to the military order began to erode. This does not disprove Fritz's argument, but rather gives it realistic, gives it realistic boundaries in which it works within. 
showing that for all but the most ingrained fanatics, reality has the ability to make you ruefully aware of your own mortality. The end portion of Fritz's account marks a steep decline in the morale of Hoffman and his unit, with a brief sliver of hope emerging for a second at the prospect of a breakout before being rapidly extinguished. Army Group A, which constituted about half of the now split-up Army Group South, was concentrated in Stalingrad, with the stronger, better-armed German divisions concentrated in the city itself, while Romanian and Hungarian divisions guarded the flanks of the German force. These divisions were spread thin, and without heavy weaponry, made them an easy target in the Soviet counterattack, encircling the Germans in Stalingrad. With the encirclement of the Stalingrad pocket, Hoffman's mind drifts not to the problems of the encirclement, but to smaller, more pertinent things such as obtaining frozen potatoes, getting sleep, and sustaining himself on the small amount of bread left. Only his last thought is the breaking of the Soviet encirclement, which provides insight into the psychological tendencies of people under extreme duress. Ironically, as the need for food became a priority, it was the German soldiers, not the Soviets, who demonstrated the most animalistic tendencies slash animal-like characteristics. The highlights, this highlights the hypocrisy of Hoffman's early, earlier depictions of the Soviet's troops, and the German racial doctrine in general.